name is Dr. Reese Granger. Welcome to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. Hello, and welcome back to Head First, the Concussion Podcast. First up, just like to say a massive thank you to Professor Alan Pierce for donating his time. I understand he's extremely busy and coming onto the podcast and providing some valuable insight into the world of concussion his thoughts and opinions on things regarding concussion and also sharing his research with us. I cannot thank you enough. I've had some amazing feedback from Professor Pierce's episode and hopefully we can get more episodes on to follow. And uh, to beginning, I think we've set the bar pretty high. So in regards to today's episode, given that the AFL or the sports seasons in Australia are upon us with practice matches, trial matches, match simulation, whatever they want to call it, I thought it would be the perfect time to kind of like do a bit of an update episode instead of diving into something new. And what I mean by this is we're pretty much just going to recover some things that we've gone over in the past, in the last six to eight months, in terms of what is a concussion, some of the common myths around concussion and misconception. Look, we've gone over it numerous times and the more we talk and discuss these things the more we're also going to dispel some of these myths and sedge some light on it so that's the basis of this episode so before we get stuck into that he's cleaned up now it's been a massive two weeks in the concussion front in australia with the main contact sports as we've already stated nrl and afl starting again so i've had to be a little bit selective in what we're going to cover in the cleaned up side and with the cleaned up section just want to point out Angus Brayshaw's retirement for the AFL, aged 28. Sad, preventable case. Unfortunately, he joins a long list of players who suffered the same fate from concussions, and I believe it's up to five or six when it comes to the 2023 season alone. So we wish Angus, uh, his family, and everyone the best in regards to that situation and every other player that's had to retire before him in all contact sports. Now, here's a snippet from the Adelaide Advertiser reported by Daniel Renfrey, I believe that's how you pronounce his name. If it's wrong, I do apologise. And here I quote, Shocking new research has revealed lucrative match payments in local football are encouraging players to downplay or in some cases altogether deny concussion symptoms for fear of missing out on income. Adelaide Footy League Chief John Kernahan said the league surveyed six clubs through 2022 to 2023 and found 70% of players who said that they're paid to play also admitted about lying about concussion. And then the article goes on and reads a little bit more in depth to this and unpacks what he's saying. Now, don't get me wrong. Before I give my thoughts and opinions on this article, I want you to hear me out in its entirety because I'm going to come back and actually do a 180 on it. So what I mean by this is in terms of just a heading and an article title and when you read the article your first thought is media's catastrophizing it which it kind of is because not really giving back to background context on pay appointments so in local leagues players get paid just like professional leagues obviously it's a lot less and it's a lot lower whether this be via second job income or it be a brown little paper bag and a petrol card the fact of the matter is a lot of the players in the local league actually need this income to supplement their normal daily living income. Now, I'm not making an excuse for for this and 
supporting concussion protocols to be skipped. I'm not. But what I'm also saying is that these players live for the weekend. They love their footy. And the education around concussion in the local leagues and working our way down to juniors isn't there. And they go by the stereotype of, she'll be all right, mate. It isn't as if the clubs are turning around and saying, hey, we're paying you. You got to get back out on the field, regardless if you've got an injury or a concussion. So I think we've got to unpack this, and I haven't done it justice in how I want to convey this message and how I actually want to talk about it. But they're just like a couple of little points. This is a, a multifactorial point, but this is implying is that clubs are deliberately getting players to lie, and players are deliberately lying just because they're so money orientated. That isn't the case, and this is a classic example of where media can catastrophize concussion and blame clubs. However, in saying that, now we go to the Herald Sun and a report from the Herald Sun, and this was written by Craig Dunlop. In this article, it's related to the AFL concussion lawsuit, and it's called The AFL is to argue players knew the risk in a landmark concussion class action. Now, in this article, it states, and I quote, in documents filed to the Victorian Supreme Court as part of the class action in which Rook is the lead plaintiff, the league has revealed it will argue that the clubs and the AFL players' employees, along with the AFL players themselves, are primarily responsible for the players' health and well-being, and that they also knew risks. Now, this is where I do a complete 180 back onto the original article. I feel this is complete neglect and negligence, especially with the stance that the AFL took, saying that player safety is paramount, we're promoting player safety, we've changed rules. Now they're saying that players knew the risk and it's their fault and the club's fault. Now, a few things to unpack here when it comes to people knowing the risks and also when you sign, whether it be local league, and I can only assume it's the AFL that you sign like a waiver that you might potentially get injured. I know with medical professions, if you turn around and get somebody to sign a waiver saying you might get injured, unless you've actually sat down with them, explained every single thing that can go wrong and how it can go wrong, that consent form that they signed means nothing because they weren't informed. Even though it says it's informed consent and they signed it, were they informed? Now, did they have a representative out there informing these players? Secondly, in saying knew the risk, yeah, that applies when we sign up, we know we're going to get hamstring injuries, we know we potentially do our ACL, we know there might be a 1 in 100 freak accident or 1 in 1,000 or 1 in 1 million, but we don't sign up for brain damage. I bet you that if you went to every person and said, look, you could potentially suffer catastrophic brain damage and it's going to impact you, your family and your life later on, would you do it? Most people would say no. So I do think they're doing a 180 here and they're also setting the precedence to be very dangerous. And what I mean by that is I talked about it on the podcast a little bit with Professor Alan Pierce, but I didn't want to go into what ifs and what can happen and what might happen when we had more pressing things to talk about. But I'll bring it up again. Ty Zantuck, we was playing for Richmond and then Essendon in early to mid-2000s, and we went over it that 
he went to the AFL and the clubs got turned down and then next minute he took the doctors to court over mild traumatic brain injury, which is what concussions over, and then he won. Okay, so that's basically what this is going to do. It's going to turn the AFL, they've turned on the clubs, and the clubs are going to turn on the doctors, and then the players are going to turn on the doctors. So this is a very slippery slope that everything's going down, and it's only one of them things where we can watch, we can wait and see. I just don't like the 180 stance that's been taken of saying player health and safety is absolutely paramount. And then all of a sudden they're saying, no, players knew the risks. It's on the clubs. I understand they've got to defend themselves in court, but there's some onus that realistically should be taken. Now, that's just my opinion. Everyone's got an opinion like a body part, but we'll see where we go and how this plays out. Now back to the show. So, what is a concussion? As stated before, a concussion is a neurometabolic cascade of events. In order to establish how this cascade unfolds, we need to break it down first into little subsections as we've done before. And this begins with ATP, which is adenosine triphosphate, action potentials, mitochondria, and ions. So, first up, what's ATP? ATP is an organic molecule, basically, and it's made in the mitochondria, which is the powerhouse of the cell. That's where all the ATP is made. And this is done through chemical reactions and cleavage of other molecules, and this chemical reaction is known as glycolysis. Now, glycolysis is a metabolic pathway which converts glucose or a sugar molecule into pyruvate, which is carbon, providing us with the energy molecules of ATP. This can be done two ways. The first way is through oxidative metabolism, which is oxygen-dependent, and this produces around 32 to 38 ATP molecules, depending on what journal article or textbook you want to read, but that's around that ballpark and that figure. Or you have anaerobic glycolysis, which is basically limits amounts of oxygen or no amounts of oxygen, and it gives us only two ATP molecules. In order to make these, molecules we need to sacrifice an ATP so really with the first one in oxidative metabolism we pay one ATP pretty much to get what we get in return in the 32 to 38 and when we get two ATP back off the anaerobic we're given one ATP to make two ATP if that makes sense anyway the second one's very ineffective system costs a lot of energy and we'll talk on this later now ATP is responsible for everything from movement, muscle contractions, providing energy for other chemical reactions, and it's basically the body's currency of spending. And we do this through the energy, and it's important to note that ATP concentrations are well-maintained within a narrow window and values in the body, and ATP levels are inadequate, the chemical reaction stops. And this is where we start to run into problem with concussion. Now... Let's talk about neurons and action potentials. Action potentials work on like an all or nothing principle when the millivolts of energy hits a threshold and sets the action potential off. So all or nothing pretty much means everything fires and goes or nothing fires and goes. It's we can't half fire on an action potential then call it back. So once the millivolts hits the required threshold, the action potential's in place and it's gone. Now we control these action potentials in terms of we set some off like 
we want to move our arm, fingers, toes, speaking. We're controlling how many action potentials fire and where they go, whereas a concussion, we don't get to control that. Back to the cell and how the cell works when it comes to an action potential. If we look at a cell, a cell is negatively charged with potassium ions on the inside and the outside of the cell is positively charged with calcium and sodium ions. This is brought and brought this breaks down into four sections. We got resting membrane potential, depolarization, repolarization, and hyperpolarization. Off the top of my head, sorry. We look at a resting membrane potential. This is where basically sodium channels are closed, most of the potassium channels are closed, and outside the cell is more positive as we said. Then depolarization, then millivolts are hit. Sodium channels open, calcium channels also open. Sodium rushes into the cell, making it more positive because it was more negative inside, and then it causes depolarization. Then repolarization is back basically the opposite. Sodium channels closed, the rest of the potassium channels close, sodium stops moving from outside to inside the cell. Then we go into the hyperpolarization, which is when the we drop a little bit further below baseline. And this is where the voltage-gated sodium channels close and the opening of the activation gates, which are, if you remember in previous episodes, are like your sodium-potassium pumps. And this re-establishes the original concentrations of the sodium and the potassium. And in order for this to occur, we need ATP. So what we're doing is we're taking the sodium from inside the cell, putting it back outside the cell to make the inside more negative again. But this costs energy. And the energy, again, is in the form of ATP molecules. Now, in a normal, healthy cell and environment, we make the ATP through oxidative metabolism. Now, this is where we run into trouble when we have a concussion. So, you think about we receive a hit to the body or the head, as that's one of the myths, is you don't have to be hit in the head for a concussion to occur. We have the neurons in the brain and the cells inside these neurons that these fine controlled chemical reactions go through like a lock and key with the ions going in and outside the cell where we receive a concussion and now we're stretching and shearing these neurons so some of the neurons snap in half and then the from the shearing component and then the stretching component is basically as it states stretching so the neurons now stretch so instead of actually the sodium and the potassium being controlled going in and outside the cell but basically like a lock and key mechanism they no longer need that the holes and the pores in these neurons have opened up and everything floods in and floods out at once and then this is where you get your typical signs and symptoms because all these action potentials instead of being controlled and now not the whole brain has fired at once. This leads to loss of consciousness, the seizures, delayed verbal, motor response, yeah, incoordination, stumbling, uh, nausea, memory loss, and then your headaches and emotional outbursts, confusion, all your typical signs and symptoms that we associate with concussion. If we take it that we've got a glass and it's at 100%, now we've dropped to about 80%. In order to get back to 100% and get everything back to baseline in in the cells and for action potentials to happen again, we need to balance the cell, as I was saying. But the thing is, is we've burnt way too much ATP with these action potentials and getting them to fire. So now we haven't got enough ATP to put everything where it's supposed to go back. 
And then the biggest thing here is that calcium comes flooding in. Originally, calcium couldn't get into the cell. But now, because the pores and the holes have opened up in these neurons, calcium's come flooding into the cell. And it goes to the mitochondria and clogs him up. So now the mitochondria can't make the ATP. So we have to switch into the anaerobic glycolysis, as we said, because we can't make it with oxygen. We've got limits amounts of oxygen. And we're only getting two ATP out, which now demand is outstripping the supply that we got. And then we start to go down and we start to feel fatigued and we start to get irritable again, as I was just saying, with all the signs and symptoms. So that's basically with concussion how it works on a cellular level and hence why it's described as a neurometabolic cascade of events or an energy deficit disorder because you don't have enough ATP to reset everything back to baseline. Now you start to feel a little bit worse for the next two to five days and by about day seven is probably the worst we're going to feel and we start to turn a corner and we naturally then start to head back up. So it's like a bell-shaped curve if you think about it, but it's upside down like a smiley face, even though it's not really something to smile about. If we go down from the moment we get hit to around about five to seven day mark and then we start to come up out the other side, the energy starts to reset we start to come back feeling a little bit better and then by the 10 to 14 day mark thing we're back at kind of baseline with no symptoms however just because we got no symptoms doesn't mean we've actually fully recovered from the concussion for the atp levels and everything to get back to baseline and back to normal it's going to be anywhere from that 24 day mark upwards so this is why they're saying that you may be symptom free but you're still at risk of another concussion or second impact syndrome. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And again, we'll unpack that in further episodes and we'll go back over this. I tend to describe concussion on the cellular level instead of just saying that, you know, we receive a hit or a blow and then we have all this firing and then you're kind of left wondering, well, what actually happens? I know we can get a little bit lost in the weeds on the technicalities. And again, because it's a podcast in a long form format, We can go into this a bit better and a bit easier. Whereas if I'm giving a presentation, let's just say to mum and dad down the street, I'll very briefly touch on this, but there is no need for me to go right into the weeds of sodium, calcium, potassium. You're just going to confuse them and potentially scare them and make things worse than what they actually are. So again, that's basically a concussion and what happens in the concussion. In order for this event to be set off, again, there's no set threshold that we need to reach in terms of a hit. However, most research suggests it's around that 70 G-forces and up with around, I think it's about 500, 500, 5,000 rads. Um, However, you can be concussed as little as 30 Gs and some people have been hit at 120 and they're not concussed. So... As my old children used to say, we're all God's children, and that's just how it works. So is where concussion spotters and everything become vitally important. So in a nutshell, that's a concussion. Now it's time for me to bang on about some of these myths and go off on tangents. The first myth is concussion can only happen if you lose consciousness and that you are hit in the head. As we just stated, you don't need to be hit in the head to receive a concussion. You can be hit in the body, and this happens through that whiplash type mechanism that then causes the stretching and the shearings of the axons. 
and then in terms concussion can only happen if you lose consciousness. A lot of the time we don't lose consciousness when it comes to a concussion. That's only around about 10 to 15%, I believe, off the top of my head with they'll know it's around that mark. In saying that, just because someone loses consciousness or has a seizure, it doesn't mean that that concussion is then worse than somebody that doesn't lose consciousness. Just because it looks bad doesn't mean it is worse. So we kind of got to dispel that one as well. And I know it's because of what we see on the sports field when someone's completely out cold after they've received a hit, like with the NRL last week. I think there was like three people that actually lost consciousness. They called the medicabs out, which I'm not knocking that 100%. That is the right thing to do because the first thing, as I banged on about before, you have to protect the C-spine when a concussion and they've lost consciousness make sure there's no neck injury. It kind of gets blown up a little bit more by commentators, by the media, by the sports players, because it is a traumatic event and people are watching and they're worried, whereas you get someone that's received a concussion and then just walks off the field, everyone's like, oh, yeah, they tend to be all right. Re-going over that, you don't need to lose consciousness to receive a concussion and you can be hit in the body or the head. Second one is you can have a delayed concussion. Now, we don't have delayed concussions. The explanation for this is that when a player is hit or receives a force to the body that is enough to actually transmit and cause a concussion, is they've received and sustained that concussion. However, because they're so engrossed in the activity that they're doing at the time and the adrenaline's pumping, and this is mainly with sports, is that they're still running around, still playing, then all of a sudden when they're actually subbed out, or they get to half time or quarter time, everything starts to slow down, the systems start to slow down, everything starts to drop and balance, and then they start to have the signs and the symptoms of a concussion. Now, this makes a bit more sense when you think of how many times you've had a player that's gone to the bench and he's sat down, or it's been half time, three quarter time, quarter time, or whatever chosen sport it is, and then they're like, oh, they've had a delayed concussion. They're showing signs and symptoms. The one that kind of comes to mind straight away is the netball finals the last year with the West Coast Fever player. Is that they said she had a delayed concussion. It was just because she was playing. Then when the game stopped, she relaxed, started getting the signs and symptoms of a concussion. No such thing as a delayed concussion. You're either concussed or you're not. And it's more about what you're doing at the time if you yourself realise the signs and symptoms of the concussion you've just received. One of the biggest myths that's up next and drives me absolutely insane is helmets prevent concussions. No, they do not. Helmets do not prevent a concussion. They prevent lacerations and fractured skulls. That's what a helmet does. And I'll go back to the analogy that I always say and that I always give is if you think of a ping pong ball floating in a glass of water. That is our brain inside our skull. Now you shake that glass of water back and forth. That ping pong ball is still going to hit the front, the back and the sides of the glass of water. And that's our brain in our skull. You shake our neck and our head and then the brain's going to hit the front, the back and it's still going to cause a stretching and shearing of the axons and neurons. Now with that glass of water, you put some foam and some sponge around the outside of the glass of water. Now you shake that glass of water again. You've reinforced the glass from damage from the outside and from potential cracks or shattering. 
but you haven't actually stopped that ping pong ball moving inside that glass of water. Same thing with a helmet and our skull with a brain, okay, is that we put the helmet on, you're going to protect the skull from lacerations, possible fractures, but not the brain from occurring the stretching and shearing responses sitting in the fluid. Then the next thing by this is, and it's one of my tangents that I'd said I was going to go on, is that helmets can imply and give this Superman type effect. And what I mean by this is you got a player, sees you wearing a helmet, he thinks, I can go harder at him, he's got a helmet, he's going to be protected by concussion. On the reverse, you got the player with the helmet on, thinking, I can go harder, i got the helmet on my head, I'm not going to receive a concussion. Data's very limited on this, but it's called the Superman effect. Fourth one, you must stay awake after being concussed. Now, where this come from is that they believe that once you're concussed, don't go to sleep. It's not so much that don't go to sleep. What kind of got lost in the weeds with this is that you got to rule out the big bad nasties first and the hemorrhage and the internal bleeding and the fractures. Once all this has been ruled out by a medical professional or if you went to the ER or had scans or everything like that based on your signs and symptoms and what you're presenting with, once it all been ruled out, you can then go to sleep. And the biggest thing is, is you let the person with a concussion sleep. You don't need to wake them up like they used to believe every hour to two hours and check on them. That just makes things worse. You think about it, we're in an energy deficit disorder with the ATP that we covered earlier on in the episode. They're knackered. They want to sleep. They want to replenish. So once everything's been ruled out and there's no underlying pathologies, bleedings or anything that has proper detrimental effects that's actually life-threatening, you can let the person sleep and you don't need to wake them up every two hours. Fifth and final one, go to a dark room and rest for two to five days. This is very old school. We know it's now that it is actually not the case. You do not go to a room and rest for two to five days or put sunglasses on. So basically what was happening here and they found is like even though they're resting, the psychosocial component also kicks in. People start to get depressed. You start to desensitize. You're always in a dark room. Then when you come out to light, everything hurts. You get a headache. And it's just like this ever-ending cycle that never stops and you go round and round and round and round. So the best thing you can actually do is sub-symptom threshold exercise. How this would work is that you go in, we'll do all our history, all our physical examinations, all our neurological examinations, make sure you're cleared of all underlying and serious pathology. Then we get get the buffalo treadmill test in the second visit. We find where your symptoms are based off your heart rate and there's a mathematical equation that we do. And then once we find out where your symptom threshold is that starts giving you headaches, dizziness, we back off a little bit. And then every day you get your heart rate up to a certain amount and you do that exercise. And that's basically how you reintegrate back into that. Then the next visit when we see you, we then start looking at your C-spine. We start looking at vestibular ocular motor components and we try and replicate where you're actually getting these signs and symptoms from. So then we know what area we can go to and work. And then start rehabbing, giving you specific exercises or have to refer you out if it's like to do with your 
ocular motor or vestibular systems. That's basically in a nutshell. And then if your athlete will put you through the Blackhawks test, and this is basically testing your spatial awareness, how you're going in rotation. There's, there's a whole range of tests. And once you've cleared and you've passed that, we'll clear to play now. As I've said in previous episodes, I can't diagnose a concussion. However, I can diagnose whiplash-associated disorder and cervical neck pain and anything to do with the cervical spine. Now, a lot of these issues overlap signs and symptoms to do with concussion, and they're treated the exact same. So, if I jump way back to the start, what will happen is you come to me suspecting concussion, you're automatically going to have a whiplash-associated disorder, and that's what I'll treat now to 100% diagnose you with a concussion. I'll refer you out to a GP. They will diagnose you with a concussion, and then I'll still carry on and treat you based off what I've found with the signs and the symptoms to do with whiplash, and then we treat that. We can recover from concussion, and 80% of people recover from concussion through natural history and just letting it play out and exercise and doing the right things as we go and it's they believe it's around that 30 30 percent mark that get post-concussive syndrome however the more aggressive and earlier we can get in and put these preventive measures in the more likely you won't progress to post-concussive syndrome it all comes down to education and that's what we're here to do and everything we talk about is purely for education purposes so in saying that, that pretty much wraps up today's episodes. We've gone over a concussion, gone over five myths, and that's pretty much it. Thanks for listening. Again, thank you to Professor Alan Pierce for the last episode. Really appreciate it and look forward to seeing you all next time. And that concludes today's episode. Even though I'm a registered chiropractor, all the information provided today is based off my interpretation of the research and is of my opinion and my opinion only. This is not a substitute for professional medical advice of your doctors or physician. If you believe you are suffering from something similar or the injuries discussed in today's episode, please contact your medical practitioner. I am your host, Dr. Reese Granger. Thank you for listening.